0: John chapter 20. I don't know what post-Christmas at your house is like, but post-Christmas at the Gilberts is a time where as we're bringing in all of the new stuff, we are secretly, parents, are you ready for this code language, exporting the old stuff. Do you know what I mean? Where we're, we're using it as an opportunity to de-junk. And, and this whole process came across some some, some old photos from the college years. And it's like, who's that man with hair? And it's like, it was, it was awesome. But I was reminded about what a prominent place a particular movie played in my life and in the life of my fellow um, college students during those four, or for some of you, six, seven, eight years together, whatever it happened to be. And just reminding that this, being reminded that this was a movie that we watched dozens of times. We quoted extensively, we acted it out, we danced to it, we dressed up for it. And of course, I'm talking about the Blues Brothers, which is not recommended for family viewing, but nonetheless, it'll do for this morning. And so if you're familiar with the Blues Brothers, Jake and Elwood, the main characters, and and the plot is very simple. They were raised in an orphanage, and now that they're grown up, the orphanage is about to be shut down because of some unpaid mortgage bills or some such thing. And they resolve to raise the money, and the way they're going to raise the money is they're going to get the band back together to play some gigs to raise the $5,000. And if you've seen the movie, you know what the rallying cry is, right? We're on a what? Mission from God. And it was sort of the organizing principle and purpose of everything they did. So whether they were Uh, being chased by cop cars through the mall or battling the Illinois Nazis, a personal favorite, or playing at Bob's Country Bunker. Everything orbited around this singular purpose. They would not be deterred. Now, in a lot of ways, that's how John has organized this section of his gospel. Last week, Pastor Scott preached this text about the resurrection, and how it's the defining moment of the Christian life, and it's the central, central thing we celebrate, and it's our hope is in it, now John sort of turns his attention to what now? Because of the resurrection, what does this mean for you and me? What is to be our singular purpose? What is to be, as the French would say, our raison d'etre, our reason for being, in Tennessee, we say our reason deeter. That's, that's how we say things like that. What is our reason for being? If the resurrection is true, it's going to make a singular claim on our lives. It makes a lot of claims, but it's going to make this singular claim on our lives, not just for these guys 2,000 years ago, but in fact for us today as a church you and your families, you and your marriage, you and your personal relationships. We're just looking at five verses today, John 20, 19 through 23. So if you can, willing, able, please stand. We're going to read this together, and then unpack it. This is the evening after the resurrection that morning. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he write its truth upon our hearts. You may be seated. John tells us it's Sunday evening It has been a mere 72 hours since the trial of Jesus, only 36 hours since the crucifixion, which explains verse 19 when it tells us that the the 11 are huddled together behind doors that are locked. Now, literally that means behind doors that were barred shut. This was not like doors like crack just open a little bit or, or shut too in order to pre- prevent the air from going out of the room or to, to help with privacy. No, no. They were barricaded in this place because they were scared to death. And you can understand why. They had just seen what had happened 24 or 36 hours before with Jesus, the, the, the terrible, torturous death that he endured, and they did not want that to happen to them. And so Jesus comes in, his first words to them, peace be with you, which is kind of, on one level, a standard Jewish greeting is still used today. Shalom Alechem, peace be with you. Now let me ask you this, If, if I'm looking around the room, and I know some of you have lost dear friends. We've had funerals in this room, spouses, kids, loved ones, family, friends, How would you react if you went to a funeral in the morning and got home in the afternoon and there was your loved one? What what would you do? How would you respond? I mean, this is like Freaky Friday kind of stuff, right? Luke 24 tells us they thought they saw a ghost. And so when Jesus comes in to say peace, I mean, he's saying, hey, 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 everybody chill now come look at my hands. This is really me. Come come look at my side. I'm I'm not a ghost. I'm not an apparition. You're not, this isn't a fig newton of your imagination. I am really here. I am really alive. And it's really miraculous because I've just materialized into this room and I am showing myself to you. And so Jesus understandably says, peace. Now, I do think something else is going on here. If you've been with us in this study through the Gospel of John, you know that John loves to layer meaning upon meaning. Now, I want you to think about the last time these 11 had been with Jesus. It had been about 72 hours before, and the last Jesus had seen of them was their backsides. They were running for their lives. They had abandoned Jesus. They had betrayed Jesus. Their Savior, the, the man they had spent three years with, they had turned their back on. The only one of them who had any sort of gumption at all was was John himself, who showed up at the cross at the crucifixion with Jesus' mother. And so this is the last interaction they had with them. But we know from last week, in the passage last week, that Mary Magdalene and some of the women had seen the risen Savior, they'd seen Jesus. And Jesus told them to go back and tell Peter and go back and tell the apostles, which they clearly did. And so these disciples are probably feeling all sorts of conflicting things. They probably felt a little bit like maybe you and I did when we were little, and our parents would go out on a date, and there were no cell phones, and so parents did not have a second by second update on what was happening in the in the home base, right? And so you would do something scandalous, something disobedient, and you would wait in abject fear for the rest of the evening, for when mom and dad would come home and the babysitter would tell them what you had done. And, and it was just sort of this, this cloud, this fear of dread that would hang over the house. In a lot of ways, that's the disciples. They've abandoned Jesus. They've turned their back on him, but they've heard he's alive, but they're afraid of the authorities. Jesus is standing there and they, they don't know what... They're trying to make sense of all this and Jesus says something that I think is just so relevant for us, and it was super relevant for them. He says, peace. I know you've abandoned me. I know you've sinned grievously, but because of my death for you, my resurrection for you, I have made peace with you. Come, disciples, let us dine, let us sup together. I can't help but think how many of us really need to hear this at the onset of 2019. You know, it's supposed to be a new year, a new me, all that stuff. And and some of us are just thinking, well, you know, I'm still really feeling 2018. Like all that stuff kind of got drugged into the new year with us. The the problems, the sin, the relationships, the struggles, the finances, all of it kind of pulled along behind us. And you may be here this morning with some super big deal burdens, a guilty conscience or some besetting sin or some hidden struggle that no one knows about. Maybe you're like the disciples. You feel like you've embarrassed your Lord or embarrassed your family or shamed your own soul and and you're lurking in the corner, you're behind the barricaded doors. You need to know this morning that Jesus comes in and he says, peace. Peace come near to me, turn to me, come back to me. I'm I'm the great initiator of this relationship. You think you're far from me, but I've gone through the door. I'm here miraculously. I'm here because I'm alive. Just turn to me. So Jesus tells them the first time peace. Now, if you look at verse 21, he tells them peace a second time, this is a totally different kind of thing going on for an entirely different reason. Because once the disciples figure out that this is like for real, look at verse 20. It says they were glad, which is the understatement of the year. Can you imagine if this was your loved one? Like what you would want to do, what you would want to say, what you want to catch up on, what's the other side like, what's, I mean, the whole thing. Verse 20, the, the word literally means rejoicing or unbridled joy. The room was lit right? It was off the chain. They, they literally cannot contain themselves. You can imagine being on sort of the outside listening in up there as, as this place is like coming unglued. And so Jesus says, peace, like peace out, like chill, like, okay, get a hold of yourself. I'm here, but I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a reason. I'm resurrected but it's time to get to work. And I, I want to talk in a, briefly in our, in our minutes left here, three implications of the resurrection for them and, importantly, for us. I'm going to talk about mission, message, and motivation. So let's dive right in. In mission, verse 21, Jesus says, "'As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you.'" Now, in the Gospel of John, one thing is crystal clear from start to finish. Jesus has come to accomplish a singular mission. And he he says it all over. Here's just an audit, a sampling, 317. He says, Jesus says, I've been sent into the world to save the world. John 10, 18, I've been given a charge from the Father to lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus says, I've come to seek and save that which was Lost The reason Jesus has come, his singular mission, was to lay down his life for the salvation of his people. That's why he came. He came to be the good news, and he came to proclaim the good news. And so when when Jesus says, Father has sent me, he now turns to each of us, not 2,000 years ago, but today, and says... Paul, or Tom, or Bob, or whoever, and says, everyone in this room, and says, I'm sending you. That ought to get our attention. Now, this word, send, it literally means to dispatch. Now, we have, by God's grace, we have a number of law enforcement folks who, who attend here at Four Oaks, and we love you, and God bless you, and thank you for your service. But I've been with some of you um, chilling out, having coffee. It would be a stereotype to say we were eating donuts. You get it. But anyway, we were hanging out together, and, and things are just like casual and chill, and we're talking, and then the call comes in. It's the dispatch. And I see the way that it just transforms the way you look. It's like, hey, see ya. I'm out of here. Like, I'm being called to do this thing and go attend to, to that duty. Because I have a singular mission. It's to serve and protect the people of Tallahassee, Leon County. It means to have a laser focus. And that's what John is saying here. Just as the Father has dispatched the Son to accomplish this mission, Jesus says, I've accomplished it. And now... I am dispatching you. You are my representatives. Your singular purpose, disciples, in Four Oaks Community Church, is to be on mission, to do the works that I have done. You see, the resurrection was not the end of something. It wasn't merely an exclamation point. It was the introductory paragraph that ushers in the age of the church for 2,000 years and for however long the Lord tarries. Now, we, this really, I mean, it, it causes us to ask all sorts of questions, doesn't it? About why did Jesus come? What was his central mission? Well, let me say this. Every generation provides an answer to that, which, if we're not careful, will deviate from the central mission of the gospel. So I grew up in a, in a baby boomer home. And so for my parents and the church I grew up in, Jesus came to fix my marriage. Jesus came to fix your finances. As a, as a generation Xer for us, it was Jesus came to give people community or Jesus came to give people a, a safe place just to, to be and belong. For millennials, now, as Jesus came to enact social justice, Jesus came to fix the ills of culture and society. And understand something, all of those things are vitally important. They are commands, they are imperatives. By God's grace, I hope Four Oaks, we're, were involved in most of these things. We have a, a, a marriage mentoring ministry, we're involved in local community outreach to the poor adoption, foster care. Um, we, We make a big deal about community. We try to foster a culture where people can belong here, a safe place. All of those are vitally important, but understand something, they're not the gospel. They're implications of the gospel. They're applications of the gospel. They are the fruit of the gospel but they're not the gospel itself. The gospel itself, the foundational reason Jesus came was to reconcile sinners to God, to give them eternal life, to secure for them forgiveness of sins, and whatever else that we're doing in our lives, folks, and by the way, we need to be doing all those things that I just said, every one of them, but never, ever, ever lose sight that our singular mission, our central purpose, is that as the Father sent Jesus, that we are the people who have been sent. John makes this super clear. John, John 1.12, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed on his name. There's so many implications for that. There's so many applications of that, so much fruit from that. But if we don't get that piece of the mission in place, we're going to be on the wrong mission. The church has done it throughout its 2,000 years of existence. Good things that become ultimate things all of a sudden become dangerous things. If the gospel is not central, so it is in your own life. And, and I'm, I'm having to preach, this is the second time I've preached this message today, and I'm feeling convicted for the second time. You know, it's, it's there's, there's so much that we can be involved with. There's so much that we can do that's good, that's right. But Jesus says, if you're not about this singular thing, do you really understand what I've come to do? We are here on assignment we are ambassadors in a foreign country. You know, reading the book last night and just it's start. I mean, I know this, but it's startling to be reminded that at the turn of the century, 1900, the average life expectancy were early 40s for men and women. Early 40s, which means like most of you would just be dead, and, and including me, and or a lot of you would be, and the rest of you are you know. so as I was thinking about that, and then like how life expectancy has increased now 35 years, so 75 or or so, even though we know we're going to die, it's so easy to forget it, isn't it? It's so easy to get comfy and be at home and be all about this life and all about our our pleasure and our ease and what we're doing and here we're going to go do this and we've got this and we use terms like bucket list and we really don't even know what we are saying and Jesus just wants to like give us the smelling salts this morning and remind us you're here temporarily you're on a mission number two what's to be the message of this mission. And I think we make this super complicated. And let me just tell you, we don't, need a, we don't need an evangelism class for this. You don't need a manual. You don't need 12 weeks of training. It's just so simple. Look at verse 23. And let me talk about first what this verse, I think, means, and then what it doesn't mean. Jesus says, "'If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. "'If you withhold from get forgiveness from any,' it is withheld. Again, forgiveness is one of those meta-themes of John. And, And forgiveness is a cultural term that we kind of throw around here, there, and everywhere. But when we talk about forgiveness, that presupposes something, doesn't it? It presupposes that we've done some sort of wrong that we need to be released from. Let's think about that for a minute. And, and, and that's why forgiveness is so hard. A lot of times people will people say, well, well, have you forgiven them? Do they want to be forgiven? Have they asked to be forgiven? Have, do they view what they've done as needing forgiveness? And John wants to make it just crystal clear that the problem of the human race is that we are all in desperate need of forgiveness, John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now listen to this closely. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, that's the penalty for sin, folks. Today, you need to know somebody is going to bear the wrath of your sin. It's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. That is what our sin deserves in relationship to a holy God. And Jesus is saying, here's how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is not God just sleeping things under the rug and, and kind of going about his way and, and let bygones be bygones. No, no, no. That, that, those sins have to go somewhere. But Jesus is saying, I've absorbed God's wrath in your place. You merely receive this gift by faith. That's the message. John Piper puts it this way, as John Piper can. He says, he carried our sin and bore our curse and absorbed God's wrath and became our righteousness and conquered death and hell and Satan and opened the door of paradise for all who trust him. This is not complicated. A lot of times we make this super complicated because what we're really fearful of is not what to say. We're really fearful of what are people going to think or am I going to offend somebody or is my neighbor going to think I'm strange or they're going to look at me as as that guy. It's, It's actually really simple. Hey, do you mind sometime if I just get together and we talk about... Spiritual things like what God's doing in my life. I'd love to know your background, what God's doing in your life. Do you believe in God? And let me just tell you, I came to the place of understanding I needed forgiveness because I'm a messed up person. And I realized that only one person could fix that and that's Jesus and here's what he's done for me. This is not complicated. We make it a lot more complicated because it's just culturally, let's be honest, sometimes an embarrassment for us, guys, we just really pray. Think about this: for those of you who have been in this place where you've sat across from a spouse or a child or somebody in a small group or a neighbor, and and you've been able to say, "God can forgive you." God forgives you if you just trust in Him and turn to His Son. We've somehow we've we've lost so much of that. And Jesus says, your message is one of forgiveness, but only, only, only in Jesus Christ. Now, l- let, me, let me just briefly address something I think this verse doesn't mean, but I think it's often misinterpreted as it relates to forgiveness. And, and all sorts of theological, catastrophic mischief has been done because of misinterpretations of this, but but some would say, look back at verse 23, that when Jesus is speaking to the apostles and he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That what Jesus is talking about there is church authority or the church structure. Specifically in the Roman Catholic system or the Greek Orthodox system, the bishops, the priests, the Pope is viewed as the extension, the successors to Peter, and the the apostles, excuse me, who've been sort of given the keys to the kingdom. And now the authority to grant forgiveness to people is based upon the authority of a person or the authority of the church. And if you've ever seen one of these Shakespearean movies or William Wallace or Braveheart, all of them, some oftentimes involve these conflicts between civil leaders like emperors and kings and then the papal leaders, the church leaders And the civil leader is always deathly afraid of one thing, and it's not all the people they're killing or slaughtering. They're deathly afraid of being barred from the mass, barred from the table, barred from communion, because if they're barred by the church, then their souls are, are condemned eternally. That's how some have viewed this passage and others like them. What's interesting about this is this doesn't seem to be the way it functioned in the life and ministry of the apostles. In Acts chapter 10, this is Peter who's preaching. Listen to what Peter says. Listen to Peter how Peter understands this and what he says. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now listen to this. To him, all the prophets <clears throat> bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through whose name? His name. That's Peter. There is no person. There is no institution. There is no ecclesiastical body. There is no group of elders at Four Oaks Church. Hear this clearly. That has the authority to grant or not grant forgiveness. That is something given to God and God alone through Jesus alone. What we do have the authority to do is to proclaim forgiveness. See, see I can get up here with a clear conscience and, and say, if regardless of what you've done in 2018, whatever you're struggling with this morning, if you turn to Jesus Christ and trust in him, your sins are forgiven. Do you see the difference? I, I'm proclaiming forgiveness, but I'm not granting it. That's between a person and the Lord God, his maker of the universe and, and, and we have an amazing thing to tell people. It's not simply that you're forgiven like I'm forgiving you, or this group has to forgive you, or this, or this, or this authority has to, to grant these special, particular ecclesiastical privileges. No, 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 no. You have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. There is no mediator. Hear this, four oaks. There is no mediator between God and man except whom? Jesus. What an amazing message. It's not about what we do. It's not about how much merit we have, how many times we we go to church. All those things are important. But if we get them out of order, we do terrible, terrible destruction to people's souls. And so so Jesus says, you have a mission and you have a message. Go proclaim it. Proclaim it. Talk about it. Invite your neighbor over. Go to coffee. Talk to the lady in the in the checkout line. It's it's you know, we find I find conversation incredibly easy with people, but I find that conversation incredibly difficult, and I have to ask myself why. And at the bottom of it all, it's like, do I really think they need this message? it's the most vital message. It's the most hope-filled message. But we need God's help, don't we? Which brings us to our last point, the motivation. Now, as we look at verses 22 and 23, I'm going to admit to you freely that these are two of the most bizarre verses in the entire Bible, okay? And R.C. Sproul doesn't know what they mean, and so I don't know what they mean. No, he does have an opinion, I have an opinion, but let me read the verses too. It's really, it's actually just one verse, verse 22. And when he had said this, you ready for it? He breathed on them and then said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, which which should raise like a bunch of questions like, wait a minute, didn't the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost? Didn't, in fact, Jesus just tell us in John 17 for them to wait, or 16, to wait on the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem? The Holy Spirit was going was gonna to come upon them? What, what is this whole thing about receive the Holy Spirit? And really, totally bizarre, what's this thing about breathing on people, okay? Sounds like my dentist office or something. And, and let me say, my, my dentist goes here, Dr. Thacker, he always wore a mask, and I was very thankful for it. But now, Sproul suggests this, and I, and I think this is actually really a really good explanation. R.C. Sproul talks about how in the Old Testament, prophets, when they were given a mission and a message, they were also given a way to sort of parabolically, symbolically act it out. So, So, for example, Ezekiel was told to warn the people of Jerusalem that they were going to be carted off into captivity. But not only was he to proclaim this message, he was to act it out. So what did God tell him to do? He said, build a little model temple Lego city kind of thing of Jerusalem. And then, then Ezekiel, just so that people really know you're strange, get somebody to wrap you up with rope, to lay, your, lay yourself on the side by this miniature city and like prophesy that way as a symbol to the fact that this is what's going to happen to the people if they don't repent. That's happened all the time. Israel, this happened to Isaiah. He had to go around naked, but that's a whole nother sermon. All right? We'll, we'll get to that later. Sproul says, and I think he's right, the same thing is happening here. This is, this is a symbolic gesture. See, this idea of breathe, let's think about this for a second. Where have we heard that before? See, in Genesis 2, when God fashioned the man from the dust of the ground, what did he do to bring life to it? He breathed. In Ezekiel chapter 37, when there is the valley of dry bones, symbolizing the destruction of Israel, and God wants to give those dry bones life, what does he do? He breathes. See, this is pointing them forward to these 30 days hence, 40 days hence, when they're going to be at the Pentecost. Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them. And the Holy Spirit is going to take this witness of the resurrection and radically transform their lives. This is a statement of what is to come. What's interesting that two of the people that were there that night, Peter and John, just terrified, a mere 40 days later, Acts chapter 4, here's just an excerpt of what the Holy Spirit taking the witness of the resurrection did to their hearts and compelling them, motivating them on this mission. It says they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. It was always a central tenet of New Testament preaching and witnessing the resurrection of Jesus. Why do you believe in Jesus? Because he rose from the dead. That's a whole different kind of conversation, isn't it? Then verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I love that phrase, we cannot but speak. We can do no other We are totally, completely compelled, and what compelled them? The power of the Holy Spirit activating the truth of the resurrection in their lives. They knew that because Jesus had come and overcome death, there was nothing, absolutely nothing, that could really hurt them. Temporally, sure. But guys, in heaven, this is just going to be a a blip, a vapor. We're, We're We might recall it just the way we would wistfully recall a dream that we had the night before, a good dream. But a dream nonetheless, because God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, they knew their victory and eternal life were secure. This was at the heart of their motivation. And it should be the heart of, of ours that nothing can separate us from the love of God there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus just like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego we studied this a few years ago in the book of Daniel oh king, Jesus God can save us but even if he doesn't he's still the Lord of all he's still, we still have eternity in him, with him we're, we're still love with an everlasting love so do you believe in Jesus this morning? If so, he invites you into his mission. If you don't know Jesus, I firmly believe you are here because someone has been in mission or on mission in your life. You've been invited here. Someone gave you the name of the church. Someone gave you the, the website address or not even sure how all that works, But you're here because Jesus sent someone to you so that you would believe in him. Let's pray.